0: Let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again this evening as we should do each time we begin a study of Scripture. Help us to open our minds and hearts and set aside some of the cares and preconceived notions of the day so that we can hear what you have to say to us through Holy Scripture. So we ask your blessing on our efforts this evening and we ask uh, all of this in the name of Jesus, Amen. Tonight we are going to be starting uh, what is called the last discourses of Christ, and, and this is unique to John's Gospel. You will not find this kind of information in the other Gospels, although there is some details that might uh, be reflected in some of the others. but. John's gospel, as we've said before, is unique. And why is it unique? Well, if you think about it, the other three gospel writers wrote in sort of a chronological or historical, not hysterical, but historical uh, mode. In other words, in uh, as logical a, a sequence as they possibly could and they wrote it in a way that would sound pretty much like history, although we know that none of the gospel, is, or in fact, none of the Bible, has ever been declared as historically accurate or scientifically accurate. It wasn't intended to be. But John's gospel is different. He wrote it much later in life, towards the end of the first century, and he wrote it in a way that reflects his knowledge of the other gospels and his knowledge of Paul's writings so rather than reinventing the wheel he doesn't give you a historical or chronological sequence in his gospel he gives you the meaning and Because he lived to be an old man, uh, he was very young at the time. He was with Christ in the time of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. So he lived to around uh, the end of the first century. We are not sure of any dates. But he had a long time to pray and to think and to meditate and perhaps even receive direct revelation from Christ himself but that we are not aware of since it is not mentioned. But his gospel reflects a very intimate knowledge and understanding of the things that Christ taught. Remember, the other gospels uh, are written from the point of view of a man who turns out to be God. John's gospel starts out right up front. Jesus is God and then he goes on from there right And so that is the mode that we are now going to be looking at. The scene for chapter 14, actually beginning 13 as last week, uh, is the upper room at the time of either the Last Supper or preferably the night before Passover, which was, one way or the other, the Last Supper, however you look at it. Uh, Theologians and Bible scholars sort of debate and differ on whether it was the night of Passover or the night before. John implies that it was the night before, and I uh, I agree with them, really, because the prophets of the Old Testament reflect and prophesy that the suffering servant of God, their rendition of the word Messiah, would be um, sacrificed on Passover. And so Christ was sacrificed on Passover. The other Gospel writers agree with that. So if he was sacrificed on late afternoon of Passover, obviously, the meal the night before had to be the meal of preparation. Remember, Passover runs from sunset of one day to sunset of the next day. And it is not always on uh, Friday or Saturday. It can be any day of the week because it is judged by uh, the first full moon in springtime. The evening of the first full moon in springtime. So, We are now in the upper room. The apostles know and understand that something is sort of going to happen, or they kind of expect it. The washing of the feet was something totally uh, foreign to them, particularly by one so exalted as Jesus himself, whom they now, recognized as Lord. So if Jesus, who is Lord, is willing to get down on his knees and wash the feet of these humble people and sinful people, including Judas, then the message from that is we should be willing to do whatever is necessary to help our neighbor, all right? Now, that doesn't necessarily mean washing feet, although that could be. My younger daughter is a hospice nurse, and she tells me some horrendous stories that she has to t- do when she visits some of her patients. One she was telling me not too long ago, she had to go to the house three different times to change the patient's. Uh, garments and the entire bedding because of being uncontrollable and she had to do it because the children of this patient were so uh, beside themselves knowing that this lady was going to die that they just couldn't deal with it. And so they called my daughter three different times and she said I had no choice. It had to be done. So I did it. And there are times when each of us in our lives might be faced with a situation that might be beyond or over and above, you know, the ordinary, but as loving Christians, we have to step in and do it. That's the message from last week. And now the apostles are beginning to wonder what is going to happen. And so Jesus starts out in chapter 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled
1: because,
0: and let's go on from there. There There's so much detail in this. Chapter 14 is rather a brief chapter in numbers of words, you might say. But there's so much detail that I'd like to actually cover it almost word for word because it is so important. Chapter 14 can be sort of divided into two main sections. The first part is Jesus is the face of God. Think of it that way because that is what Jesus is trying to tell the apostles. Remember, this night is being dedicated in a way to the apostles uh, as a farewell, but the farewell is not uh, sort of uh, a self uh, grand mark What the farewell is, from Jesus' point of view, is instructions to his his uh, apostles. Okay. It says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You have faith in God. Have faith also in me. You see, up to this point in time, they thought maybe he was God, but they weren't, you know, totally sure. They weren't totally convinced yet. The resurrection had not happened. Some of the other things that really convinced them had not happened yet. And so there is perhaps some doubt in their minds. You have faith in God. Have faith also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If there were not, Would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back again and take you to myself so that where I am also you may be. Where I am going, well, let's stop there. This whole idea of dwelling place in God's house. Think of it this way. Think of heaven as a gigantic church. Now, I don't mean like the mega church up on the hill. Uh, that looks more like, uh, a dark movie theater. But think of it as a beautiful church. How many of you have been to St. Peter's in Rome? Quite a few. All right. If you stand at the main door, usually we say the back door, but if you stand at the main door, you cannot see anyone or recognize anyone at the far end, the opposite end, all right, partly because the altar's in the middle, but I don't mean it that way. Uh, if you knew somebody down there, you could actually not pinpoint him or her because the distance is so far, about the length of two football fields, okay? So think of heaven as a large church and there are pews all the way from the front and the back. Now St. Peter's doesn't have any pews except a little side chapel but the main church does not have any pews. Most of the big cathedrals and churches in Europe do not have pews. All right, What they do have is little chairs that you have to go and get and bring to it or sometimes they're set up in advance but let's forget about that part of it. Okay. Think of this heaven as a a long, beautiful church. And all of the action is up there by the altar. God's up there, Jesus' up there, the Holy Spirit's up there flying around, you know, like a dove, you know, that kind of thing. Where would you want to be in that church? Wouldn't you want to be right up front, first seat, to see what's going on? Okay. It depends on what you have done and accomplished that lends itself into God's plan of salvation. How have you fulfilled your role in God's plan of salvation? Have you just done enough to squeak in the back door? Or did you go over and above what was asked of you so that you're really close up front? That's what Jesus is kind of trying to tell the apostles here. He is going to prepare a very special place for them. In many churches in Europe, particularly where you have cloistered uh, priests and nuns, come. they are generally in a separate room where there is a grill or a grate uh, so that the general public cannot see into the room but these people can see out. Okay. So that's kind of what this idea of the dwelling place is. Jesus is going to prepare a special place for his apostles. And when he returns, he is going to then take them with him. Now, as I said either last week or the previous week, this idea of I'll see you... Uh, You know, in a little while you won't see me, in a little while you will see me, and back and forth and back and forth. People wonder well, what is this little while? Even the apostles wondered what that meant. So, does it mean the three days between his death and resurrection? Does it mean the time between the resurrection and his ascension into heaven? Or does it mean the time from his resurrection until the end of time? Most scholars believe and agree that it is what is called the parousia, the second coming of Christ at the end of time. Because that is far more definite than the other time periods, even though we know that the other time periods already did happen. But what we're really talking about is Christ will return for sure at the end of time, the second coming. Thomas says to him, Master, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. All right. A very important statement. Some people have put them together, kind of turned around, and says that Jesus is the truly, i got to stop and think, you know, uh, truly the, the, the way of life, okay? No, that's not what he's saying. Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. He's talking about eternal life. Truth Truth is real reality. Now, in today's, you know, we have all these reality shows on TV. They're anything but reality. Uh, We all know that, but I think most people watch them to see how... Can it really be? Jesus represents truth, divine truth, which is divine reality. And he is the way to the Father. So if you put him sort of turned around, uh, the way to the Father. In fact, if you think about it, This is a fairly good illustration of that. Everything has happened so that now the Holy Spirit will come and pick up his role and carry it through to the end of time so that all mankind will be returned to the Father. That is all who die in the good graces of God. So this is a, a fairly reasonable explanation or illustration of that. So think of Jesus is the way, the truth, the real reality and eternal life. Because no one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, then you will also know my Father. From now on, you do not know him. <clears throat> From now on, you do, you do know him. I'm sorry. You do know him and have seen him. And, <laughs> and I love this next line. Philip says to him, Master, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And you can just feel Jesus' exasperation here when he says, Philip, have I been with you for so long? A time, and you still do not know me? And you can just feel Philip cringing in the corner, you know. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? There again, what Jesus is trying to tell us, and as we go through chapter 14, we will actually see the Trinity sort of develop in the words of Christ. All right. But what he wants you to see through this is that the father and the son. Well, let me me give you a slightly different way to explain that. In Jewish culture, particularly of this time period, the time period of Christ, the firstborn son was always the uh, main representative, you might say the extension of the father. He always received all of the father's possessions at the time the father died, whether the mother was still living or not. He inherited everything. And then he had the responsibility of taking care of the mother if she was still living, and any siblings. But the firstborn male was always the recipient of all the honors and the glory as well as the inheritance. It was because... In this culture, the Father and the Son were so closely related and connected, it was as if they were the same person. And that is why Jesus is called the Son of God. From that culture, how else would he be explained to those people? Uh, And they would understand that relationship. And that is what he is trying to tell us, that the Father and He are so closely related in thought, word, and deed, that they are like one person. Although the Trinity, the theology of the Trinity, says they are three separate persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But their thinking their objectives, their love is so united that it is as if they are one person, they are one God. Is that understood? That is kind of what Jesus is trying to tell us. Now, when I say that Jesus is the face of God, that is exactly what I mean. In this culture, again, the word face is really uh, symbolic of the presence of God. In, in uh, Psalm 27, in the second part, part B, uh, there is a line that says, seek his face. It doesn't mean physically the eyes, ears, and nose, etc. It means the presence of God. And so by Jesus being the very presence of God, we don't really have to pray separately to the Father, or we don't have to pray separately to the Holy Spirit, although we can. There's nothing wrong with that. But if we pray to Jesus and unite ourselves with Jesus in a one-on-one type of relationship, That's all that we really need to do because Jesus is the face of God. And that's what he's trying to tell us. Throughout John's Gospel, John is trying to promote a relationship between Jesus and all of his disciples, including us today. We are the disciples of today. And it's important that we kind of understand this idea of relationship because that is the essence of the life that he is trying to give us. So many people are caught up in church and that is fine as far as that goes, but is not that is not necessarily a relationship with Christ himself. In fact, for years, unfortunately, one of the teachings, misunderstandings, but nevertheless the teaching of of some of the people within the church is that just do what you're told by the church and that is all that you have to do. And that is totally wrong. Totally wrong because... You can do, you know, you can be one of the pillars of the church, but if you have no relationship with Christ, then all of your work in the church, good as it may be, is not going to help you get into eternal life. Let me give you a reading. If you have your Bibles, go to chapter 7 in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, this is right at the end, almost the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is talking to a large crowd. Many or most of these people have accepted Jesus as Lord, which makes them his disciples. Remember, all of the apostles were disciples, not all the disciples are apostles. Some of the writers of the Gospels, in fact, many of the writers, sort of use the word interchangeably. You have to be a little careful of that. We are the disciples of Jesus today. Obviously, we are not the apostles, that's the bishops. Not the priests, but the bishops. Okay. Now, if you go to Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, in other words, not everyone who just does things for the church will enter the kingdom of heaven but only those who do do or does, only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. But many will say to me on that day, meaning the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty deeds in your name? But I will then declare to them solemnly, I never knew you. In other words, there was no relationship <coughs> between God, or that is Jesus, and the individual that is saying all of this. And Jesus then says, depart from me, you evildoers. In another place, he says essentially the same thing, but with slightly different words in the story of the foolish virgins, you know, the ten Virgins, five were wise and five were foolish. Uh, five did not prepare for the long wait for the bridegroom, according to the story, the bridegroom representing God or Christ. Uh, so they have to go off and get some oil because their uh, tortures were running out. And while they're gone, the bridegroom comes. And as customary, once the bridegroom arrives, the reception hall is been closed to anyone who is late or straggles in or whatever. And when the five who were not prepared come back with their torches, they bang on the door and say, you know, let us in, let us in. The important statement is exactly the one I just read from Matthew. It says, depart from me because I never knew you and if you think about that you can work your <coughs> self to death by being one of the pillars of the church but if you have no relationship with Christ all of that work could be in vain because it depends on what and why you did it who did you do it for Did you do it simply because it was self-fulfilling? And I can't answer that. No one can except the individual. So you've got to be very careful. What Jesus is not saying, he's not putting down people who work for the church. We need all of that. But he said over and above that, you have to have a relationship with Christ. That's one thing we don't hear about from most of our church leaders today. This idea of a personal relationship. And yet, that is vital to what John is telling us in chapter 14. Any questions? Anybody have a problem with that? better not. (laughs) Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I speak to you I do not speak on my own. The Father who dwells in me is doing his works. Remember as I said, the Father and the Son Are so united that whatever Jesus does, whatever Jesus says, is really what the Father has commanded him to do or to say. And so what Jesus is doing is the work of the Father. And that's what he's explaining right here. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Somebody said to me just recently, they were reading a book about the apparitions of Mary, the Marian apparitions. And they said, you know, one thing struck me. Every time Mary appears to someone, she's always promoting something or that Jesus says or Jesus wants or Jesus does. She never talks about God. And I was a little bit taken aback uh, when he said that, and I said, well... Once something you have forgotten here? Jesus is God. And so all we have to do is communicate our feelings, our wants, our needs, our desires to Jesus. And you are including the Father and the Holy Spirit. Now Jesus has just told us here, no one comes to the Father except through me. Well, now that doesn't mean if you want to pray to the Father that you have to get Jesus' permission. No. What that means is once you have accepted Christ as your Lord, then that is the permission if you want to pray to the Father. And that's okay. But the Father is really saying through Jesus, I am the representative of the Father. The Father is in me and I am in him. And so, it's not that I want you to necessarily change your whole mode of praying, but as long as you are praying, that's fine. And that is the primary way of developing a relationship with Jesus. is through prayer. And I don't mean a higher Jesus or You know, that kind of thing. I mean a time set aside for daily prayer to get to know who he is, to get him to know who you are. All right? Now, you're saying, you might say, well, he's God. He knows everything. Sure. But he's asking you to dialogue with him. Give him your time. Set aside 5, 10, 15 minutes, whatever that might be, where nothing else takes place except your communing with the Father or with Jesus or with the Holy Spirit, but preferably Jesus. Okay? That is God's plan of salvation. That is what this is illustrating here. Very important. Now, it says, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or else believe because of the works themselves. The works that Jesus does really is on behalf of the Father. Amen, amen, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do, and will do even greater ones than these, because I am going to the Father. Now, you might say, well, how could we do greater works than Jesus? All right, one of the greatest miracles uh, that Jesus performed is is changing the water into the wine at the wedding in Cana. You're you're all familiar with the story back in, I believe, uh, chapter 5 of John's Gospel. All right. Now, if you think about it, what does a vintner do? A vintner grows grapes, pours water on them constantly, harvests them, and voila, in a short time, they're wine. Isn't that a miracle in a way? Just as much as Jesus did. Jesus hurried up the process a little bit. Yes. But nevertheless, when a vintner, a wine grower, processes grapes, he doesn't do anything outside of water and harvest, <coughs> process and the water becomes wine. Sure, there's a few other details involved here, so don't go home and try that in your kitchen, but uh, nevertheless, in a way, and if you think about it, there's a lot of things that we do that we take for granted, but the Spirit of God is really working alongside of us. All right? And that brings us to the word paraclete or the Holy Spirit, the advocate. Paraclete is more of the same variety, you might say, as somebody who is working alongside of us. And that's the job of the Holy Spirit, is to take what Jesus has begun and carry it through to the end of time. And that's the reason for the broken line here is because the role of the Holy Spirit is continuous until the end of time. Well, that means our life is when we die, but the Holy Spirit's role continues uh, until everyone is returned to the Father one way or the other. Now, there is a statement here at the end of this first section. Verse 13. And whatever you ask in my name, I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything of me in my name, I will do it. Well, You should hear some of the stories that I've heard over the years about that. You know, people will say, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed to win the lottery. I even tacked on Jesus' name and nothing happened. That's not what it means. That's not what it means. First of all, Jesus is saying this to his closest apostles, his very closest disciples but it extends to all disciples who have committed themselves to Jesus and accepted him as Lord and Savior, so that if you pray for something, it is in line with your particular role in God's plan of salvation, and then he cannot refuse you. But it is not for extraneous Luxuries uh, are all kinds of wants. It is to fulfill your role in what God has asked of you. And how do you know what that role is? Through prayer. That's where you get the message. Nowhere else. In the midst of church liturgies, Too much going on. Too much distraction. Not that you can't pray during that time because the lifting up of your mind and your heart to God during the Mass and other liturgies is prayer. But it's of a different kind of prayer. It's not the kind of prayer that helps you develop a relationship. It is worship and devotional prayer. Yes but not the same kind. Even the little um, phrases like, uh, oh, Lord, bless me or save me or uh, protect me or, you know, little things that you might sort of think about or even vocally uh, express during the day. Those are good little practices, pious practices, but they're not prayer. Prayer is when you Specifically, with decision, sit down and dedicate some time and particularly a space to be with your God. Now, the kind of prayer, what you say is up to you. Nobody is going to tell you how to pray. Nobody's going to say you have to be on your knees. Or, you know, you have to be standing. The Jewish people used to stand and pray in this position. That was the proper way of praying, particularly Mm -hmm. in the temple. All right. But that's not important. The definition of prayer is the lifting of the mind and the heart to God. If one or the other is missing, that is not prayer. Because you could be saying the, the rosary and at the same time wishing you were out in a golf course or the football field or at the shopping mall. Um, that's not good. You've got to have the mind and the heart working together. Think about trying to build a bonfire. Okay? When you want a build a, a nice fire supposing you're out someplace where it's beginning to get cold and you would like to have a little fire so you bring wood to a spot hopefully that you indicated was is safe <clears throat> but you could pile that wood sky high and it wouldn't be a fire until you light it okay now in your prayer You light the wood, which is the words of your prayer, through the heart and the mind. Once the wood starts burning, depending on how good the wood was, how good your prayers are, then you will start feeling the warmth from the flames. Now, you didn't put the flames there. You didn't really do anything to get the heat out, except that you brought the wood together and you ignited it with your mind and your heart. That rises up. The smoke and the flame rises up and the heat comes back to you. And that is your return. That is what you wanted in the first place. And that's kind of a simple illustration of what prayer really is. Uh, The gathering of the wood, that is the offering of prayer. Now, if you haven't done that, I would suggest that you think about starting with the Psalms. Take one or two Psalms, just no more than one or two at a time, and read them. They may not mean a thing to you, but if you offer them with a spirit of humility in the spirit of worship and love, they become like good wood to that fire that you are trying to set. But don't worry about it. Try it. I'm sure that you'll find it not only encouraging, but enjoyable. Let's go on. The Holy Spirit, the Advocate, this is the first place in the entire Bible that you get a real good idea
1: of who
0: the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit is. It's the Spirit is mentioned in various places in the other Gospels, but in very uh, minute detail, all right? Very little. Even in the Old Testament. The Spirit is alluded to in various ways, uh, but not specifically. So, in John's Gospel, we have the first real in-depth understanding of who the Holy Spirit is and the Trinity. Now, the word Trinity is not given to us in John's Gospel, but if you look at it here... You will see it, as I pointed out to you. The first part. If you love me, all right, that is the key to unlocking the door of your heart to the Holy Spirit. If you love me and will keep my commandments, I will then ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, another implying that Jesus is the first one. And now another is coming because Jesus is going back to the Father, the ascension. I will give you another advocate to be with you always, the spirit of truth, which the Father cannot accept, I'm sorry, um, which the world cannot accept because it neither sees nor knows it, but you know it, because it remains with you and will be in you. (laughs) Now, in some way, block off those lines, would you please? That is verse 15 through 17. and mark over on the side somewhere, uh, Holy Spirit, or HS. All right, now I want to go on. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me, because I live in you, and you will live. On that day you will realize that I am in the Father and you are in me and I in you. Whoever has my my commandments and observes them is the one who loves me. Again, the key to opening the door here. And whoever loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and reveal myself to him. Judas, not the Iscariot, said to him, Master, then what happened that you will reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Well, all right, take from verse 18 down to 20 or through 22 and kind of block that off. That is... Jesus or the Son. Now, Jesus doesn't really answer Judas' question, at least not in the way we would think of it. But in a roundabout way, Jesus gets the answer. Jesus answered and said to him, Whoever loves me will keep my word and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our dwelling with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Yet the word you hear is not mine, but that of the Father who sent me. So verse 23 through 23 and 24 really are reference to the Father. And when you put all of those together, you have the Trinity. Now, to sum up some of that, I have told you this while I am with you the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, that the Father will send in my name, he will teach you everything and remind you of all that I told you. Now, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. So do not let your hearts be troubled or afraid. You heard me tell you I am going away and I will come back to you. so if you love me, you will be you will rejoice that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now somebody will say, well, gee, if you just said they're so equal, etc, cetera, etc, cetera. but you've got to remember this is the human Jesus talking to his human disciples. The human Jesus recognizes that the divine father is greater than he and now i have told you this before it happens so that when it happens you will <clears throat> you may believe for i will no longer speak much with you for the ruler of the world is coming And who is that? Satan. Yes. Satan in the form of Judas. Yes. Judas. Remember, this is the Last Supper because the last words here of this section are get up and let us go. And where are they going? To the Gethsemane or the Mount of Olives. Yes. And that's where Jesus is confronted by Judas. So his point is, Jesus' point is that he knows what is about to happen and he's trying to prepare his apostles. Well, of course, they hear it, but they don't really get it. I mean, they all scatter once, uh, Judas and the Roman guards and the Pharisees come after Jesus and chain him up and so forth and so on. And they don't even show up except uh, John does show up at the crucifixion, but there is no indication that the apostles showed up there because we are all afraid. Uh, And that's kind of humanly speaking. Remember, they have this long teaching about the Holy Spirit, but they haven't yet received the grace of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't come fully until the night of the resurrection and more so on the on Pentecost Sunday. So I hope you can see now what Jesus is saying about this Father in me and I and the Father back and forth of Jesus is the face of God. And if we think about what he says, what he teaches, what he represents, what he did for us, then that is really what you really need to do to keep uh, your spiritual sanity, so to speak. What uh, Jesus is trying to tell the apostles is they, they kept all of that in mind they wouldn't have to worry either. Unfortunately, like I said, it didn't they didn't have time to let it kind of sink in, and they didn't have two thousand years of theology that is developed in the church for us to understand either. And some people still don't understand it. And that's unfortunate because they don't open their mind and their heart. And that is where it really is is. Um you've got to spend time with any relationship it requires effort and the effort begins with inviting christ into your house your heart your house your life and eventually you will want to not only must you but you will want to give your whole will over to him. right Now as I've said before, a lot of people are afraid to do that. I know I was afraid to do it myself when I was confronted by Jesus really demanding a commitment from me. I thought, well you know I got a job and I've got small children at the time. And Uh, Family and, oh, I don't know about this. And yet, once I gave my will to the Father through Jesus, this peace that he talks about filled and invaded my whole being and has never really left. Sure, I have my problems and trials and tribulations um, or had, They've diminished over the years quite a bit. But nevertheless, um, we aren't free of those kinds of things. But with the peace that God gives us through Christ, we can learn to handle not only our responsibilities, but all of the trials that we are subjected to as human beings. Any questions?
1: Bob, I'm still bothered by in the gospel, I mean, in the New Testament, it's the Word of God statements by Jesus that are not literally true. You have to accept, well, so as I said ask anything in my name that's not the law. It bothers me that Jesus didn't speak truthfully, well, accurately.
0: No, that is truthful and accurate to the people to whom he spoken.
1: As long as they're asking for the right thing. Yes. Or, but the qualification was not put on. That's what bothers me. It doesn't sound like It it was blessed by God that these were his literal words. It bothers me that they're not more accurate. Well. Qualifications are not stated. It sounds like, ask for anything like two Cadillacs, and you'll get it tomorrow. Uh, We all know that isn't true, but it sounds like that. That disturbs me, frankly.
0: Well, I can understand that. Uh, but, unfortunately, I can't give you more than what's already in there.
1: No. No, yeah.
0: Besides, I want a Mas- Maserati, not two Cadillacs. say <laughs> follow the way? Yeah. And isn't it a you know, if you don't go
1: along with him, forget it?
0: Yeah. yeah. It really is, you have to put it all together. And he said, as we have just pointed out, I am the way. All right. And if you ask the Father anything in my name, I will give it to you. But that isn't part, you know, the lottery isn't necessarily part of the way for you.
1: But that's like a fine me. print that we don't see on the television.
0: Uh, that could be. It is
1: fine print here.
0: Yes, yes. But, you know, like anything that sounds too good to be true, you got to be careful. Okay? Dick?
1: Somewhat similar vein. Yeah, I am bothered by uh, I am the way, and you can only get to God, you can interpret that as get to heaven through me. Right. But there are a lot of good people that don't go through Jesus Muslims, Buddhists.
0: All right the explanation for that is and I'm glad you mentioned Muslims the church has taken the extension of John's gospel which is the first letter of John chapter 4 of the first letter of John says that if you love and have love in you regardless of the culture but it's got to be true agape love like we talked about last week and you live in the spirit of agape love even though you don't know Jesus and never had the opportunity you may have heard of him as a historical person but you don't really know anything about him and that is not your thing but if you live in the spirit of love agape love then God lives in you because God is love. And if you die in that state, then there's no reason why you can't go to heaven. God's not going to kick you out because you didn't know Jesus. All right? But the key there, as I've just said a couple times, the key is love. You've got to live in the spirit of love, agape love, like we talked about last week.
1: And, you know, I know that, you know that, we believe that. But the troublesome aspect is that people who don't understand it are you know, those Christians who say, well, you know, if you don't believe in Christ, you've go to hell.
0: Well, and, and that's, that's, that's the
1: troublesome part
0: of it. Well, that's understandable. It's troublesome for all of us but then they really don't know Jesus because that's not what Jesus has said. They may think they know, but they don't. Um, the other problem that we have with uh, some people who claim to be Christian, and they say, well, uh, I was saved on such and such a day, you know, April the 1st, whatever. Um, And I I would say to them, well, why that particular day? Well, that's the day I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And from uh, that point on, regardless of what I do, I'm saved. I can go to heaven and not worry about anything else. Wrong, wrong. Their interpretation is something self-fulfilling. It is not accurate. That is not what Jesus has said. The key is you have to love with agape love and through Jesus. If you do not know Jesus, never had the opportunity, and there are many people in this world that fill that slot, uh, that's an entirely separate thing. And in the documents of Vatican II, that's very, very clearly stated. So I'm not saying anything that isn't uh, church teaching. You had a question?
1: His name or
0: Oh, yes. The name of. Him. That's right. Uh, Steve mentioned uh, the quotation here from the end of that first section. Ask anything of the Father in my name. I'm quoting here from uh, John's Gospel. And I will give it to you. Uh, remember... When we use the word name and in the biblical sense of the use of the word name, we are talking more about the person and what he stands for rather than what he is called. Remember, the father has no name. Yahweh is not a name, it is a title. So you have to be very careful when you tack on the name of Jesus because it can be a very powerful statement and if you do not really believe what you are saying then your statement can be void. For example, when we say in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, what are we saying? I believe in the person of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and what they all stand for, not just what they are called. So we have to be extremely careful. When we do say a prayer, as I did when we first started, and close with, we offer this in the name of Jesus, what we're saying here is that we are offering that in a way that would give glory and honor to Jesus, and that we fully subscribe to that. But you can't just take, in fact, it actually, it actually says so here and a few other words. to page 74 I had it covered up with a sticky here that's why I didn't see it page 74 uh, in the commentary section the third paragraph towards the end of that third paragraph it says to pray in the name of Jesus has nothing to do with a quasi magical power in pronouncing a name in other words Jesus The name of Jesus is not a magic wand. It means to ask for something with the same mind and heart as Jesus would and presupposes abiding in him through the Spirit as commanded in chapter 15. Well, one is vocal prayer, the other is meditative prayer. And there's three different levels of prayer. And, you know, you're speaking of the second level. Then there is a higher level called <coughs> called contemplation. And there is where you do nothing. You let the Spirit work through you. Okay. Uh, but, yes, there are three, as I said, three kinds of prayer, vocal prayer, in which, for example, the Our Father and Hail Mary, the Rosary, and other prayers that people have, Someone else has written, uh, but that you recite as if it was your own, and that's fine. That's the way it should be. Uh, that's vocal prayer, and I don't necessarily mean you have to sing it. Uh, the Lord would be, I think, chagrined if I tried to sing, but uh, I do uh, do a lot of prayer. Meditative prayer is when you take, for example, um, a psalm. And you go through it line by line and try to meditate on the words that may or may not apply to you, positive or negatively. That's meditative prayer. Then you have, and of course in that case, you open your mind and heart to God and let him, as this gentleman said, uh, let the Holy Spirit work through you to develop that. And then Contemplative prayer is where you just put yourself in the hands of God and let him take over. And that is very difficult. Uh, Most of us in the active world uh, rarely reach contemplative prayer. It is thought years ago that it was uh, something that only uh, cloistered nuns and priests uh, could do well Is not limited to anyone anyone is capable uh, but not always trained nor do they understand it that's what man uh, a little both all right uh, Lucy just asked where it says if you love me you will keep my commandments uh, is that the Ten Commandments, or Jesus' teaching. And really, it's both. All right? Remember, Jesus narrowed uh, the wide range of laws that came out of the Ten Commandments into the Jewish faith, 613 laws, which they still uh, recognize. Some of them are, are obsolete because they have to do with things that are either no longer used or no longer in existence. But nevertheless, the 613 laws, which is, you might say, an explosion of the Ten Commandments, are still observed by Jesus. I'm I'm sorry, still observed by Jews. Jesus said, that is really not necessary. It is too much of a burden. We will narrow it down to two, love of God and love of neighbor. And if you keep those two, and of course they have many aspects, then you have fulfilled the law. All right. Comes out of Romans chapter 10. Yes, sir. Right. That's right. And that is the whole purpose. That's the whole mission of the second person of the Blessed Trinity. To take his role as a human being And be the face of God for all mankind, before, during, and after his life. So that you're right, we don't have to pray through Jesus to the Father or to the Holy Spirit. Praying to one or the other uh, is sufficient. And the Father is recommending that we pray to Jesus, who is representing both the Father and the Holy Spirit. For example, when Jesus says in the end of uh, Matthew's Gospel, I will not leave you orphans. I will be with you until the end of time. Well, he doesn't mean in a physical sense. He means in a spiritual sense. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the Spirit of Jesus. It's the Spirit of God. They are of one mind and heart. So we don't have to, as Mike pointed out, go through Jesus to one or the other. Jesus is in the Father, and the Father is in him. And now he is represented by the Holy Spirit. So that should be enough for us and give us confidence. Again, the key to reaching the heart of God is through Jesus and in the fulfilling of the commandments, primarily the commandment to love. And that is agape love, as we talked about last week. Obviously, agape love, which is all-encompassing, includes family relationships, and it includes affection uh, and sex. But those are very small parts of it, and it only includes those if they are sincere love. You might as I said to somebody after last week's class, I love my sister, but I sure wouldn't want to be married to her. Um, So, you see, you can go on and on about all of this. But the point that I really would like you to take home with you from tonight's lesson is the idea of relationship. The relationship with Christ. That overrides, really, anything that you do for the church. The church represents Christ, and Christ is the head of the church. But the church is made up of human beings, as we well know. And the church has had, over the years, many faults because of those human beings. But the church lives on and will continue to live on until the end of time, Christ has said so. So, it's important that we love Christ and we love God through Christ and through the church. You cannot separate the two, Christ and the church. They are all part of the same body. But unfortunately, too many people have their vision stuck on the church and totally forget or ignore Jesus Christ. And they are really missing the boat by doing that. Yes?
1: You had a handout tonight on some meditations. Are you going to comment on that?
0: Yes. (laughs) I am. (laughs) Yes, I am now, yes. All right, if you turn to... This is actually from a uh, daily devotional called The uh, Word Among Us, and it's like the Magnificat and many others, all very good. This happened to be today's uh, meditation, and I think in a way it kind of fits into tonight's um, Talk. The Pharisees, one of the many religious groups that made up Judaism in Jesus' day, were a well respected lay renewal movement that had begun around the year 150 BC, shortly after the Maccabean Wars and the uh, put down of the uh, Greek Seleucid kings as successors of the pious Jews who actively resisted paganism during the Greek occupation of Palestine in the 4th century. The Pharisees sought to preserve Jewish identity by rigorously following practices that distinguished Jews from foreign peoples, practices such as circumcision, dietary laws, and purity rituals. In fact, the name Pharisee was derived from the Hebrew word for uh, purism uh, meaning the separated ones and you can go on and read this there's no point in me rereading it word for word but here again is a good explanation or example of how religious practices can become so important to an individual or group of individuals that they become more important than their intended purpose. And that is what happened here with the Pharisees. They took the laws, the Jewish laws, the Mosaic laws, they added several things to them, and then they began to worship the law. And they judged themselves on how great they were by how well they observed the law they forgot entirely the purpose of the law was to worship God. And some of these laws had nothing to do with worshiping. I mean, whether you built a fire on Sunday to, or on the Sabbath to cook your meal was forbidden. Uh, got pretty cold, you know, in Israel in the winter. And uh, did not... Uh, have a fire to uh, cook your dinner or to keep your house warm, uh, you're really suffering for what reason? So what happened here, these laws, for example, the dietary laws, they were pure common sense laws to help maintain good health and hygiene practices. They had nothing to do with worshiping the law when they were first instituted. But over a period of time, as people observed them, they crept into the religious aspect of their worship and became as important as some of the other, really more important laws. And we today have the same weaknesses of falling into that same rut of observing the, uh, we mentioned last Sunday, about observing the strictness of going to church on Sunday. And that is what God and the church have asked of us. But there are things that could override the importance of going to church. And one of those is to help your neighbor who is desperate for some kind of help. Or you might, on the way to church, run across a... No, that's a bad phrase or use of
1: words.
0: (laughs) You might uh, observe an accident that has just happened and somebody lying there on the road or somebody who uh, recently uh, fell off their bicycle and uh, um, laying there on the side of the road. Uh, What are you going to do? Pass them by because you are late for Mass? Or are you going to stop and help him you see the pharisees would say you had to go to mass forget about the poor guy at the you know lying on the side of the road god says no way so you see it's a matter of interpretation and i think when you get down to it you've got to turn to prayer if you have any doubt that's where prayer comes in Lord, help me to better
1: understand what I am to do in this particular situation.